This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll talk about progressive politics in Orange County, California, once upon a time the bedrock of Reagan Republicanism, now represented in Congress exclusively by Democrats. Gustavo Ariano of the L.A. Times will give us an update on progressive movements within the Democratic Party in Orange County. Also, Australia is burning. We'll talk about the fires with Lizzie O'Shea in Australia and also talk about her new book, Future Histories, later in this hour. First up, Trump, Iran, and us. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, we're not at war with Iran today. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation and author most recently of the book Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. We're all so relieved to have a, a very stable genius keeping us out of war with Iran. I just want to go back a step here. Before the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, Iran was not violating the nuclear agreement. Iran had been a mortal enemy of the Taliban. They'd been fighting al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. What exactly is Trump's Iran strategy today? Oh, John. <laughs> uh, you know, if you can figure that out, you're, uh, you're way, way ahead of anybody in the Trump administration, because I don't think they have the slightest idea what their strategy is. We now have some evidence of a a modest de-escalation, but I'd be very careful even about saying that, because while the president is saying that um, he is ready to talk to anybody who is interested in peace and things of that nature, he is not embracing the opportunity that Europeans would be thrilled to give him uh, to renew the Iran nuclear deal. And, in fact, he's talking about dramatically greater sanctions on Iran and on this this mad theory that somehow uh, starving the people or denying the people access to medicine or making it hard for them to, to get the basic needs will cause... Um, you know, some sort of revolution that will upend the Iranian government. And, and the problem with that is, of course, that this assassination, by all accounts, if, we're, if the reports we get from Iran are correct, has actually done a great deal to unite Iranians uh, rather than, uh, you know, cause the instability that apparently Donald Trump wants. So when we say all these things, what we come to the conclusion is, is there a strategy? No. It's, it's Donald Trump, kind of a man who knows genuinely nothing about the region, trying to you know, come up with some way to put pressure on people he doesn't like, and ending up creating a circumstance now, John, where um, by any measure we are less likely to get a, a good nuclear agreement with the Iranians. And frankly, um, we are less likely to have the balance of powers, as unstable as it may have been, that we did have, and that balance of powers um, in the Middle East, in a number of places, uh, did uh, make it possible.
possible to take on ISIS and to to take some other steps, which apparently were goals of the United States government, um, but now I would argue are imperiled. Uh, so Iran. Uh our, our our relationship with Iran is a mess, as you say. And then there's Iraq. The Iraqi parliament voted on Sunday to expel the American troops, which remain there, 5,000 of them. Of course, this comes after the United States has lost thousands of American lives fighting in Iraq, after the United States has spent hundreds of billions of dollars. Now American citizens are being urged to evacuate from Iraq as well as Iran. Um Hasn't the withdrawal of American forces from Iraq been the primary goal of Iran and indeed of uh, the very general that we assassinated? Hasn't that been their goal for the last decade? Yeah, I don't know if it's the primary goal, but it's certainly been a goal. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's literally, if there was a strategy and you said, well, what would, what would you want to do to completely upend a strategy that, that advanced what were the stated goals of the United States, well, you do what we're doing, or what we've done, uh, because we have, we have undermined any chance, it looks like, and maybe I'm wrong, but it apparently undermined any chance of uh, kind of renewing relations with Iran, uh, a place where, by the way, we had actually gotten to some level of diplomatic exchange and, and, and functioning. Um, and we've now created a situation in Iraq, which is one where the Iraqi government feels it must um, tell foreign powers to leave, and it must distance itself dramatically from the United States. Um, that is not a united view in Iraq, by the way. There are some Iraqis who, who are not all on board with that, um, but the, the dominant you know, statement is there. And, 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 John, this is where it gets really to be an incredibly messy situation, because it's, it's not about, you know, a few thousand American troops uh, or even more troops that the president, you know, lost in this whole mix of the president's and ordering more troops into the region. And so maybe we're not talking about 5,000, maybe we're talking about a higher number. Um, but it, it's not just about that. This, we're really now at a point, John, where we have to talk about the stability of Iraq and, and whether the current government um, can maintain control of, of the, the territory that is Iraq, um, which has always been up for question, uh, whether you will see a resurgence of the militias, which were a huge challenge uh, during the height of the American occupation, and whether you will see um, ISIS itself uh, resurface in, in some parts, of no especially northern uh, Iraq. So we'll be dealing with the repercussions of what Donald Trump did last week, probably after Donald Trump is president. Yeah. The more recent news from Iraq, after the Iraqi parliament voted to expel the American forces from their country, Trump threatened that if Iraq went, ahe went ahead with expelling American troops, quote, we will charge them sanctions like they've never seen before ever. It'll make Iranian, sanction Iranian sanctions look somewhat tame, close quote, American sanctions against Iraq after we've spent hundreds of billions of dollars supporting them after a decade of war to keep them Not as a decade, a, John, almost two. Almost two. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> uh, let me switch the focus just for a minute here to uh, 
to the Iranian uh, uh, nuclear deal, uh, I, you know, I'm always a, a looking for the bright, the, br- the silver lining. The glass half full. The glass half full. And I can't help remembering that Lawrence Wilkerson has said on Chris Hayes' show, and, and also on Democracy Now!, I think, that his sources in Tehran say that Iran is not going to kick out the nuclear inspectors because it wants to keep the support of Europe, Russia, and China, all of whom signed the Iran nuclear deal along with Obama. Uh, so maybe even though uh, Trump is you know, beating the drums for a war with Iran, maybe Iran will be wise enough to hold on to the support of Europe, Russia, and China by not pulling, not closing down uh, the the inspectors. Am I am I a crazy optimist here? We are now in a situation after having demonized Iran. It, yeah, our U.S. government having demonized Iran for decades is in a situation where we have to rely on the reasonableness of the Iranians. Yeah, right. That's and, uh, it. Their desire, their desire to have a some sort of functional, stable play out of this, and. The interesting part of it is that Iran is a very divided country. It has factions that do not agree with one another. And something like what President Trump has done, you know, in a series of actions in recent days, you strengthen the hardliners. But uh, despite that, you still have, uh, it appears, a substantial number of folks in Iran who would like to be part of the international community. Yeah. And this is not to make them heroes, right? There's plenty of people who want to be part of the international community who aren't good players and who you don't love, but you recognize that it's better to have them in than out, right? And um, the forces that want to keep Iran in relations, especially with the Europeans, appear appear to have an upper hand uh, at this point. And this is why, as you know, kind of maddening as the last few days have been, it's why we still have to hope for this de-escalation of, of what the U.S. is doing. We still have to hope um, for a reasonable approach on sanctions, uh, one that doesn't kind of drive toward a, a greater chaos. And we have to hope that um, the Europeans will step up. The Europeans were not heard from a lot last week, and, uh, and I think there's a lot of people who just did not know what to do in the face of what Donald Trump was doing. Um, now, hopefully, we will see um, a situation where especially the Germans and the French uh, step into the void, where Donald Trump will step back to some extent, and you know, we might be able uh, to get back on a track of, of you know, some maintenance of the, of the nuclear deal, and you know, the, obviously, if you're going to be a glass half full, John, why don't we go to three quarters? <laughs> okay. And hope that this terribly chaotic moment that we've just been through, and that we are still in, let's be honest with ourselves, that it might lead to a, a decision by Donald Trump, who has often shown a willingness to negotiate with people like the North Koreans. Yeah. Right. That he might, you know, entertain the notion of of some sort of effort to to talk with the Iranians. I know that that's really a glass half, three quarters full theory there, <laughs> but that's that, that's that's you know 
because what we've been through is so jarring and because I think we all came to a moment where we were genuinely frightened about being on the brink of war, um, you know, it's sometimes that at their best out of moments like that that you get toward uh, some effort to try and dial things down. Trying to dial things down, John Nichols, readhimatthenation.com. John, thanks as always. Great to have you on the Thank show. Thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch in the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, progressives at work in Orange County. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Australia is burning. But first, progressive politics in Orange County. Once upon a time, the bedrock of Reagan Republicanism. Orange County is now represented in Congress exclusively by Democrats who swept the congressional elections there in 2018 and are working now to hold on to all those seats. For the latest in that story, we turn to Gustavo Ariano. He's a staff writer for the LA Times. He previously worked at the LA at the OC Weekly, where he was an investigative reporter for 15 years and editor for six. He wrote that memorable syndicated column called Ask a Mexican read by 2 million people in 38 cities, and then a best-selling book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back. Hola, John. Hey. So let's first establish your bona fides here. Your parents are Mexican immigrants, and how did they get here? My mom came here legally because my grandmother was a refugee from the Mexican Revolution who was born in Arizona. Uh, my mom was born in Mexico, but she moved to Orange County in the mid-1960s. And, and you want to talk about a completely different Orange County. When she was going to junior high, she was one of seven uh, students of color in a population of 2,000 students. Everyone else was white. By the wow. time I went to um, a high, a junior high in Anaheim in the mid-1990s, there was probably only seven white kids <laughs> full of Mexicans and Asians. But that's my mom. My dad, on the other hand, came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. That was the first time he came without papers. And myself, me, I was born in Anaheim, and I've lived in Orange County my entire life. Trunk of a Chevy. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you recently went to the opening of Bernie Sanders' Orange County campaign office uh, in Santa Ana. What was that like? Oh, it was so energetic, and, and, and about 200, 250 people went on a Sunday afternoon, the Sunday right after New Year's Day, or, you know, the New Year's Day weekend, um, late evening, about 5 o'clock or so, everyone just there for the opening of the headquarters. But to me, what struck me what wasn't so much a support for Sanders, which, of course, is very enthusiastic among young people, and especially people of color, but really it was a reunion for the Orange County left, and these were people... I've known, like, some of them my, almost my entire life, a lot of them throughout my career when I was at the OC Weekly, and it was all these disparate factions, people who only know each other via Facebook, and now a lot of them were meeting themselves 
each other for the first time. And yeah, they were uniting under Bernie, but really what it showed me was like, here's the left of Orange County, so long ridiculed by both Republicans and moderate Democrats, and they're really ready to, you know, I hate to use this political metaphor, but it's such a good one, ready to use to flex their muscles. <laughs> so this started, this flexing of the muscles began with Hillary in 2016, the first Democrat to win Orange County since 1936, FDR, uh, then came 2018 and the flipping of all four Republican House seats, and then the party registration numbers. Where do we stand now on party registration in Orange County? So in the summer, uh, the Democrats uh, outpaced the Republicans. In other words, they went ahead of the Republicans for the first time since the 1970s. And this is in the summer. Ever since then, though, the, the Democrats have bumped up their lead over the Republicans to 15,000 registered voters, which is 1%, which seems very small and almost inconsequential. But again, we have to remind ourselves, this is Orange County, California, the place where Reagan said all the good Republicans go to die, the birthplace of Nixon and some of the most noxious form of, uh, forms of conservatism ever seen until, of course, this current era. And so a lot of people just cannot believe what happened. What's interesting about the Hillary election in 2016 is, yes, uh, uh, or the, the, the voting for Hillary in, in Orange County was, yeah, a lot of Democrats did so, but also was a lot of Republicans who just did not want to vote for who's now President Trump. I think the 2018 election is more indicative of sort of this this blue wave really pushed by the progressive faction of the Democrats, in this case, like pushing out a lot of incumbents who, you know, they knew they were going to have a bad year, the Republican Party here in Orange County. They don't want to, you know, they didn't want to be seen as the party under their administration who lost Orange County, but it was all these young activists who just went out there and, you know, emboldened by Bernie in 2016 and by all the battles, local battles in Orange County in 2018, they really made their mark. And now in 2020, though, the bigger question isn't so much who's going to be elected president, but whether Orange County Democrats could start making some gains on local races. Well, before we talk about that, I just want to look at the bigger picture of why this is happening. The pundits tell us, the pundits basically take the <clears throat> that Ronald Reagan quote, uh, seriously, Orange County is the place where good Republicans go to die, and in fact, they have all died, and that's, that's why the, uh, the Democrats are in power. To what extent is that true? I mean, let's not try to also sugarcoat sort of the past. It's like Orange County very much was deeply, deeply Republican, deeply, deeply conservative. This was all agriculture up until about two, uh, World War II. Then it became suburbia, fueled in large part by you know defense contracts and uh, you know and, and these master plan communities. But all along, there's always been radicals in Orange County. Always, always, always uh, going back to you know to Japanese and Mexican laborers who were staging wildcat strikes in the early 1900s through the 1940s. And then, of course, in the past uh, 30 to 40 years, you've seen the increased diversity of Orange County's population to the point where Orange County became majority-minority in 2004. But all of these were smaller movements. There was really no uh, county-wide movement to try to make its imprimatur, uh, you know, the, the progressive imprimatur on the rest of Orange County. And at the same time, I mean, the most, uh, the most, uh, how can I put this, the most prominent Democrat of this past generation was Loretta Sanchez, a longtime congresswoman who famously originally ran uh, unsuccessfully for an Anaheim City Council seat in 1994 as a Republican under her married name, Loretta Brixey. 
<laughs> now, flash forward to today, we have Katie Porter representing Irvine. We have a Democratic Socialist and on the Anaheim City Council, Jose Moreno. This is not your grandpa's Orange County anymore. It's not even your uncle's Orange County anymore. <laughs> Uh, I want to. I'm glad you mentioned the Anaheim City Council. Uh, there's a little-known story. You know this story. The Anaheim City Council used to have at-large elections where the whole city voted for all the members of the city council. There was a long legal battle led by the ACLU to switch to district elections. It sounds kind of like boring civics uh, classes, but it turned out to be tremendously significant, not just for Anaheim, but for the future of Orange County. Tell us about the Anaheim City Council switching to district elections. So in 2014, the ACLU settled a lawsuit with the city of Anaheim to bring in district elections. Uh, advocates, mostly progressive, argue that this would allow for more representation, more diversity on the Anaheim City Council. I, you know, back then I opposed, not so much opposed it, but I just, it, it, it was sort of a historical because during these, uh, you know, the at-large elections, as recently as 2005, I believe, Four of the five council members at the time were people of color, which was you know kind of crazy. But what this did do, and, and currently the Anaheim City Council is run by Republicans again, with only two minorities out of seven. So so far the diversity really hasn't pushed. But what it did do though was start to inspire similar lawsuits across Orange County, and slowly but surely you're seeing not just more people of color running and winning, but also more progressive. The most dramatic example actually isn't. Anaheim, but the city of Costa Mesa. In the past decade, the city of Costa Mesa has made national headlines for uh, uh, council members and mayors who have been pushing to essentially deputize or you know give immigration powers to the police department there. So got a lot of uh, notoriety for that. And now, though, the city council is not just majority Democrat, but super majority Democrat. And all those Democrats are progressives, you know, pro- progressives, Older folks like Katrina Foley, a longtime politician there, but also, uh, you know, young people in their 20s, like unabashed progressives. And the city of Costa Mesa, now three of the seven council members are Latinos. So you're going to see this slowly change local politics in Orange County forever. Meanwhile, the Republicans, they were so cocky and thinking they would rule Orange County forever. They literally have no idea what to do right now. They have no idea what to do right now. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Gustavo Ariano of the L.A. Times about progressive politics in Orange County. You reported in the L.A. Times that there's currently a fight going on between progressive and moderate Democrats in Orange County. The moderates, of course, say it's dangerous to risk the gains of 2016 and 2018 by pushing too far and too fast. What's the response from the progressives that you've talked to about this? Oh, they're ready to see a widespread transformation of the Democratic Party. And again, being at the OC Weekly, I had known about these fights forever. I, I had covered a lot of these fights, the moderates trashing Dem- uh, progressives, progressives trashing moderates. But this was at a time where the stakes really weren't that high because no one ever expected the Democrats to be in charge or you know to, to possibly take over Orange County for a good generation. Now that it's happening, a lot of the moderates are saying, well, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, business as usual, let's just, you know, uh, protect what we have. 
But the progressives, they, they feel that they have found a champion in the current chair of the Democratic Party of Orange County, Ada Briseño. Ada Briseño is co-president of here Local 11, the Hotels Workers Union, that especially covers a lot of Orange County. And just to give you a bit of the bona fide that Ada has when it comes to being a progressive, two weeks after she got elected chair of the Democratic Party of Orange County, she was part of a sit-in outside the Anaheim Convention Center at an intersection to protest for higher wages, and she got arrested. Wow. Not exactly seeing other, uh, you know, party chairs across the United States getting arrested for workers' rights, but that's what Ada brings to the equation. And let's talk a little bit about the the Democratic primary uh, candidates coming to Orange County. Uh, I understand not only did Bernie open a campaign office uh, there, but Bernie himself has been in Orange County uh, recently. Yeah, and so what's interesting now, the Orange County is suddenly like hot among Democrats, you know, national Democrats, long ignored, now they're coming. So Bernie actually was at a town hall meeting in 2018, uh, was it 2018 or 2019? I can't remember, but town hall meeting for Disney Disneyland resort workers hearing about their, you know, their issues with trying to get a higher wage in Disney, and Bernie has actually talked a lot on the campaign trail about those Disney workers that he's met. Amy Klobuchar came uh, to a packed uh, town hall of over 600 people for the party. Andrew Yang has passed by twice. Of course, Joe Biden's been coming here many, many times to get money from the moderates. But um, Elizabeth Warren sent her a message to the Democrats during their annual fundraiser. And obviously, uh, California is going to go blue for the presidential election, but the primary is still up for grabs. So I, I think it's going to be, what, in March. So I expect more of these Democratic candidates to swing by Orange County and try to really get the votes out for them. Well, let's talk specifically about holding on to those four congressional seats that the Democrats flipped two years ago. Uh, I, I looked up the margin of victory to see who's vulnerable and who's who's got a stronger base. Gil Cisneros in Fullerton won by 12 points. Harley Ruda from Newport Beach and Laguna won by seven points. Katie Porter from Irvine won by four. And I see there are five Republicans running against her in the primary. And Mike Levin from uh, Oceanside and Coastal San Diego County won by four, but there's only one Republican running against him, a guy who lost the Republican primary last time around. Um, is it your? What's your sense of who's vulnerable here? It would seem on on the basis of this accounting that Katie Porter is the most vulnerable. But I know the National Democrats are very big on keeping Katie Porter in the House. Yeah, Katie has actually been very popular in Orange County and Irvine, and of course she's a national star now. People love her brashness and her smarts as well. So I actually don't think she's going. She she's in any real danger. And the other thing in that district, yeah, there's all these Republicans running, but not a single one of them has real any prominence. The two most interesting races are going to be Gil Cisneros and Harley Ruda. Gil Cisneros running against him uh, is Young Kim, a Korean American former state, I believe she was a state assemblywoman who uh, who has, of course, the full backing of the party. And against Harley Ruda, has got to be Michelle Steele, who is currently a supervisor on yeah, the, yeah, supervisor Orange County Board of Supervisors and also Korean-American. So the Republic and Mike Levin's safe as well, but the Republican Party, they are going to throw everything possible to gain those seats. And they, uh, you know, Young, of course, is running again. But they drafted Michelle, and, you know, she's also married to the former chair of the California Republican Party, Sean Steele. So they're bringing up, you know, they're going to bring out the guns to go after those. 
Gill, I think, is going to. I think it's going to be tougher for Gill than it is for Harley. But again, don't count out the Republicans. They are mad, and so that's what's going to make twenty covering twenty twenty politics in Orange County. It's going to be a blast. So remind us about Gil Cisneros. What most people only know one thing about him: he won the lottery. But he's had an interesting life and comes from an interesting family. Yeah, well, a working class guy from originally from East LA uh, won the lottery, so moved to. Beautiful Brea and Yorba Linda, that whole area. <laughs> Used to be a Republican. Also, uh, I think he was in the Navy, so he's a veteran of the yeah. armed forces. Yeah. And switched to a Democrat, won his primary against a progressive candidate uh, in, the, in 2018. And for the most part, he's still pretty moderate. He's not definitely not part of the progressive wing of the party like Katie Porter. But people in general like him. And, of course, the Democrats now, they're like, well, we gained this one. We're not going to lose this one. We're going to do everything possible. So it's going to be, it, it, it's, it's almost like the unstoppable force versus the immovable object. And it's going to come to a huge collision course here in Orange County. And also, you know, coupled with uh, the Republicans wanting sweet, sweet revenge against the Democrats. Uh, earlier in this segment, you said that the real battles are going to be lower down in the, in the local races. That's something I don't know anything about. Where are the most interesting and most important ones going to be fought in 2020? Definitely the Board of Supervisors, the Democratic Party, um, they want to gain another seat on the Board of Supervisors. Right now there's only one Democrat and the one in Central Orange County, um, Andrew Doe, longtime incumbent there. He's a Vietnamese-American. He's running for re-election. And the primary there, I think, who is it? The, the, the outgoing mayor of Santa Ana, Miguel Polito, I believe, uh, I, I think maybe Loretta Sanchez is going to run for supervisor again. She lost in 2018. That one's going to be interesting. Of course, the Anaheim City Council is going to be interesting because it's always interesting. This is, of course, the city run by Disney and also the Angels. Uh, the city of Santa Ana, Miguel Polito, he's been mayor there for 24 years, finally going to be uh, termed out after voters finally got sick of him. So who's going to replace him in a city that's basically run by the police union? Mm. Oh, so it, 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 the, the important thing to realize about Orange County, especially when we talk about this blue wave, 75% of the local seats are still held by Republicans, which is something that the Democratic Party knows they need to correct. So now with these district elections and with this momentum, you are now seeing more Latinos, more Vietnamese Americans who have historically voted Republican, more African-American candidates. All across Orange County, they're slowly running for office. They're doing, the Democrats are now doing what the Republicans long did and have seemingly forgotten how to do, which is create a farm system of candidates that they can graduate up to different levels. So that's what you're going to see in 2020. Can the Democrats replicate what the Republican Party did for so long to be able to be in power here? Gustavo Ariano of the L.A. Times, our man in Orange County. Thank you, Gustavo. Great to have you on yeah. the show. Of course. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. But first, a report from Australia. Lizzie O'Shea is a lawyer, writer, broadcaster, and author. She's worked on many significant cases in Australia, advancing human rights and social, social justice.
She's a frequent commentator on TV and radio. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and Jacobin. And she has a new book out. It's called Future Histories, What Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine, and the Paris Commune Can Teach Us About Digital Technology. We reach her today in Australia. Lizzie O'Shea, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on, John. Well, first we need to talk about the fires in Australia. The area that has burned is bigger than the state of Maryland. Dozens of people have died, along with how many animals? Half a billion. It's an incredible figure. And uh, there's now reports that there may well be animals that are functionally extinct in parts of New South Wales and also on Kangaroo Island off the south coast of Australia. So it's an absolutely devastating event. And where are you now in relation to the fires? So I'm in Melbourne, which is the capital of Victoria, a southern state. Um, When I got up this morning, the whole place smells like smoke. We haven't had it as bad as Sydney, of course, which has been blanketed in smoke for uh, more than a month um, with very unsafe uh, air quality for residents. Uh, But I can certainly smell it now. And um, the east and southeast of our state has been ravaged by bushfire. It's absolutely incredible. So you wrote about this uh, for Jacobin, um, and you argued that this is a tremendous political opportunity uh, for Australia and, in fact, for the whole world. How do you see this? Well, our government is currently led by a party, conservative party, they're called the Liberals, but they're conservatives, and uh, they include climate deniers within their ranks. And we've lost a decade, really, of uh, time in which we could have taken action on climate, and we failed to do so. Uh, and we're seeing the consequences in the form of devastation for everyday people. So I suppose what I see is a chance to show what are the consequences of inaction on climate and to start to elevate the discussion in Australia to take more action, to uh, talk about a just transition and a Green New Deal. But I also think it's a chance to realise how international this is, how we're all in this together, because even if Australia did uh, engage in a turnaround and had the most progressive possible policy on climate, we're going to be dependent on other nations also taking action uh, because uh, carbon knows no boundaries, knows no national borders. And and the reverse is true as well. So um, the smoke that's coming from the Australian bushfires has reached New Zealand, it's reached Southern America, uh, South America, I should say, and in New Zealand, it's turning glaciers brown, mm. which will predict, one uh, argument is that this will increase the rate at which they melt. So the consequences as well of climate devastation when they take the form of bushfires that are extremely aggressive and enormous, is they'll be felt by everybody in the world as well. And to my mind, it really highlights how this is an international issue that we need to find ways to collaborate across national boundaries to implement programs that reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but also make sure that it's people-centered so that we can win um, win the political argument as well. Uh, and I wonder about the climate deniers of Australia. Have Are they uh, ready to uh, join in the Green New Deal, or are they still saying this is just a normal life? Well, it has been a crisis for the Conservatives, there's no doubt about that. Uh, People's expectations about what we need to do to address climate change are changing in Australia, and that's a debate that we're going to have, and I think the left's got to step up and take action. When I talked about the lost decade, though, I'm not even just talking about the Conservatives. The Labor Party 
held office during some of that time and they need to also step up. So even though Australia has a relatively low percentage of global emissions, we export a huge amount of coal to places like China. And the Labor Party has dithered, has um, has not been definitive at all about what to do about this issue. And I think this is the time for the Labor Party to also step up and offer an alternative by saying that we need a moratorium on exporting coal and natural gas um, and other greenhouse gas producing um, resources. And so it's not just about uh, what we do as a nation internally, but also what we sell to other countries as well. And so it's putting pressure on the parties that are supposed to be of the left for the working class to say to them they need better policies, as well as obviously um, highlighting the immense crisis that's facing conservative politics that for too long has put money ahead of people. Well, let's shift now to talk about your new book on digital technology. It's called Future Histories. Digital technology, of course, that's the cyber vampire squid that sucks our data from us and then shares it with the FBI and the police who want to control and predict our behavior the same time that we're told that digital technology is fun and, and actually empowering. The, the names Facebook and Google come to mind here. You say in this book, Future Histories, that looking backwards can give us another way of thinking about the future of technology. Please explain. So I think when we talk about technology, society is often treated as an object that technology does things to rather than a group of people with agency and a collective desire to change their future. And to that end, I think it's worth looking back at historical social movements and radical thinkers from the past who faced uh, public policy debates or particular philosophical conundrums and organised to find ways to advocate for the interests of people above profit. And so my idea is to provide some of this context to debates we have about technology and draw a line in that, um, in that historical time to the present that shows how left-wing arguments and ideas have relevance to debates about technology. The book is not designed to be for people who are just familiar with technology. Uh, that's part of the idea that if you've got uh, ideas about history or politics that you might also be able to find ways to apply them to debates about technology and I can help you kind of come to those conclusions or think about these issues more. But also it's a book that's designed for people who do work in technology that are perhaps starting to think about things in more political ways and we've seen lots of radicalism amongst technology workers and other people in that field and to give them some historical context and make an argument that history from below is an important uh, contribution that we need to constantly be thinking about and updating our knowledge on so that we can put our best foot forward in terms of making technology as we design it more democratic in the present. We're speaking with Lizzie O'Shea in Melbourne, but she'll be talking in Los Angeles about digital technology and her book, Future Histories. She'll be at the last bookstore on January 23rd at 7 o'clock. The last bookstore is downtown L.A., at 5th and Spring Streets, more information at lastbookstorela.com. Uh, let's talk about Facebook. Attorney General Bill Barr has been pushing Facebook to stop using end-to-end -end encryption in their messaging app. He says it could undermine law enforcement agencies trying to prevent terrorism, trying to stop the sexual exploitation of children, and trying to block election meddling. 
I'm against terrorism, the sexual exploitation of children, and, elec- and election meddling. Should I be against Facebook encryption? I think this is such an interesting debate because it's always framed in this way that there's urgent needs for law enforcement that require us to give up privacy and the security of our communications. So encryption is a really important tool. It's one of the ways in which any kind of communication across the internet can be protected from being accessed by nefarious actors. And often what law, enfo- well, what law enforcement has been trying to do in the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, so that includes Australia, but it's also obviously the United States, is to crack down on encryption to make the job of law enforcement easier. But I often think in that calculus we miss an important aspect of encryption, which is that it also protects against nefarious activity. So it's one of our last lines of defence against state-sponsored terrorism um, or other kinds of criminal hacking. And so weakening encryption also exposes us to those threats, that the idea of digital security is not something that's thought of as global. It's often something that the state likes to just allocate to the job of intelligence and national security organisations. What I would say is I think that these problems of child sexual exploitation, of other kinds of criminal activities, definitely something that law enforcement should be addressing. I don't understand why we necessarily always need to attack encryption in order to do that. There's plenty of ways in which Facebook already cooperates with law enforcement. If you talk to anyone who works there, they'll tell you. And often, I think, at, um, at quite a bit of criticism from uh, people like me, digital rights activists, they're too cooperative with law enforcement agencies. I don't think that's the problem. I think that what this is is a political attempt to undermine people's privacy at a personal level uh, and prioritise the interests of law enforcement above our digital security as a collective of which encryption forms an integral part. So we've talked about encryption. Let's also talk about free broadband. Let's talk about Chattanooga, Tennessee. Sure. Sure, let's talk about why it is that so many people in the United States have access to poor broadband and why that is. Um, There is part in my book, actually, where I talk a little bit about this, about the privatisation of the Internet backbone, that the Internet really began, of course... It had began as a military project um, because militaries are well-resourced and they often come up with new technologies. But it was also a collaboration between universities that developed the, the basic infrastructure of the internet that most people rely on today in the United States. And what happened was that that really occurred during a period in which government was prioritising, privatising public infrastructure because they thought they would do it better. And as a result, largely the internet backbone was privatised and outsourced to private companies to then profit from building... Um, Uh, broadband connectivity for different people. And that's produced a worse outcome for lots of people who use the internet in the United States. And what we're starting to see is an incredible kind of return to public ownership. So lots of local councils, local civic organisations that are using um, the public infrastructure to provide a service at low cost or much lower cost at a non-profit basis because the profit-making entities just don't do a good job, which I think is a fantastic insight into how privatisation can both be reversed but also why privatisation of these kinds of um, infrastructure projects can be hugely damaging to everyday people who rely on them to go about their everyday lives. And for that reason, Tennessee is one of these projects that has very fast broadband at a very cheap rate, and there's lots of other communities that are part of these networks that are building essentially bottom-up infrastructure uh, providers 
that don't prioritize making profit. And I think it's a really exciting space to watch. Well, the Trump administration is against free municipal broadband. They say it limits freedom of speech. This seems a little (laughs) unlikely to me. I hear you chuckling. Do you know of any evidence that freedom of speech has been limited by free municipal broadband in Chattanooga? God almighty. Um, it's an interesting claim, I must say. It does sort of remind me of this funny um, issue in American law whereby, of course, companies are people too, and they have rights, the right to be able to donate to political organizations, of course, which has caused a huge amount of controversy, and that the right to be able to do business might be taken away by a non-profit uh, civic infrastructure uh, strikes me as something that's a very curious way of arguing that that's a limitation on free speech. Um, uh, I mean, it doesn't surprise me tr- that Trump, the uber capitalist, would be uh, very concerned about profit-making businesses being undermined by public infrastructure um, that's powered by people. And I think when he's condemning it, then we know we must be doing something right. <laughs> well, everyone I know is outside the world of, of tech. Uh, what can we do right now to help control how the digital revolution unfolds? Well, I think if we are going to take back some control over how digital technology organises our lives, we are going to have to build greater relationships and collaborations across traditional kind of divides in this way. So activist organisations that work with vulnerable people or advocate for particular kind of civil and political rights, they're also going to have to come to terms with the way in which technology is limiting privacy, is increasing surveillance, And then also I think technology activists who might be interested in open source things and uh, all sorts of complex technical debates need to get better at talking to activists in other social movements about how to protect themselves, how digital policy in fact impacts what other work is being done in um, in left movements. So I think we need to start talking to each other more. I think we need to start trying to learn how to engage with these debates and not let um, the powers that be, whether it's companies or law enforcement and national security bodies, get away with the usual rhetoric around um, prioritising their interests above everybody else's. Uh, so there's lots of concrete things you can do, and there's some great organizations that offer guidance on that. The Electronic Frontier Foundation in the United States is a good example of that, of practical tips that you can do to protect yourself. But really, I think we need to start politically thinking about these things differently, that we're in it together, that if our digital rights are violated, that's going to result in other rights being violated. And also vulnerable people who are trying to fight back for their own rights need help from digital activists to be able to do so well. And that's the idea, I suppose, in writing this book, to try and build bridges between those two worlds and and show the commonalities rather than the differences. And uh, last thing in your book, Future Histories, you say there are some important things we need to stop doing, some things we need to unlearn in order to help the democratization of digital technology. What are they? I think we need to find ways to think critically about what companies are trying to do. There's a huge tendency now to think technocratically about social problems to say that there isn't a problem that technology can't fix and that there isn't a problem that more data about that problem couldn't help us understand it better. And I think we need to be cautious about being utopian about technology and assuming that companies always have our best interests at heart when it comes to developing some of these projects and approach them with more criticism. And to avoid technology being papering over these social differences and addressing some problems while leaving uh, a structural problem uh, 
uh, intact underneath. I think we've seen this a lot in the Democrats. You know, Barack Obama was a well-known technocrat. He loved technical um, solutions to social problems. He also was very close to Silicon Valley. And we're starting to see with different candidates in the in the, um, in the Democratic presidential nomination race, uh, we're starting to see that um, start to fall apart a bit. But I think it's very important that we maintain that criticism of, of technology in its corporate form uh, to avoid letting those people write the rule book for how technology would be developed over our lifetime, which is currently what, what will be happening unless we fight back. So I'm learning some of those technological utopian responses and trying to break some of that nexus between people who say they're progressive but might actually be um, exploiting us and, and violating our rights. We have just one minute left, and I want to talk briefly about Ada Lovelace, somebody I never heard of until I read your book. One minute on Ada Lovelace, please. Ada Lovelace is a fantastic character. She's really known as being the first computer programmer. She made the leap from calculation to computation in the mid-19th century. She was the daughter of Lord Byron, actually, so her mum discouraged her from writing poetry, but instead she applied that poetical mindset to the world of mathematics. And what's interesting about her is the world of technology is often seen as a world of bros, and yet she's a woman. Uh, and I think her collaborative approach, approach to learning is something that we could model in the 21st century uh, and apply that innovative thinking to how we make technology now, and we'd be better for it. Lizzie O'Shea, she'll be talking about digital, digital technology in her book, Future Histories in Los Angeles at the last bookstore on January 23rd at 7 o'clock. The last bookstore is downtown at 5th and Spring Streets. More info at lastbookstorela.com. Lizzie O'Shea in Melbourne, thank you for reminding us about the five eyes, something we don't hear about very much uh, on this program. Uh, it's been great talking oh. to you, and thank you so much. It's an honor. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. John Nichols of The Nation talked about Trump, Iran, and us. Gustavo Ariano of the LA Times reported on progressive politics in once Republican Orange County. Thanks to our engineer, Kiana Williams. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>